0: Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes.
1: I've been up now for seven hours
0: and I have listened
1: to the song Do You Really Like It? By DJ Pied Piper and the Master of Ceremonies. I would say twenty-five times. Do
0: you really like it?
1: I said to CJ, "Do you, it, you miss is it, is it garage?" And he said, "Siege." I said, "No." <laughs> Which surprises me, I don't know why. I could see you going to a UK garage nostalgia night, but apparently not. Apparently I don't know you at all. Do you miss Garage Panda? Name
0: some more garage tracks for me.
1: Oh, what are the best garage tracks? CJ said the minute he hears garage, he just tastes Smirnoff
0: Ice. Oh no, I taste Smirnoff Ice when I hear... I was about to say I'm blue dabba dee dabba die, but I was like nine when that came out, so that would be worrying. When do I taste
1: Smirnoff Ice? When you hear sweet like chocolate, that's when. The best UK garage tracks of all time. Sweet like chocolate, do you really like it? Flowers, scrappy,
0: are you sleeping? Don't Who's
1: fall- flowers? In the pouring rain? Fla- yeah, exactly. That's garage?
0: Yeah. Okay, I don't know what garage is. We must mention DJ Luck and MC Nate at this point.
1: I was about to say DJ Luck. Little bit of luck. God, I think that's my favourite garage track of all time.
0: OK, well, then I do like Garage. I thought Garage was... I don't know what Garage is, do I? Oh. I, I like Garage, and actually this morning I've realised I miss it every day of my life. And I Define it done. for me. Is it just that it's like a medley of lots of different musical influences going around at that time? One <laughs> of you. No, but what like a com, one of you's got to help me here. Is it that it's like a bit of pop, a bit of R&B, a bit of MCing? One of my friends was a Garage DJ. If I'd known we were going to be discussing this in advance, I would have got him on.
1: <laughs> it's a bit of emceeing. I think it's a bit of like ooh ooh
0: ooh. <sighs> it's a certain BPM. I don't know. Oh. What, I don't know what the official BPM,
1: BPM is. Eh? Some of these are a little bit woolly to me. Got to get through this, Daniel beddingfield Now I would not call that garage. Lisa Mafia, Miss Dynamite, oh, yeah. <gasps> I
0: love Miss Dynamite. Teak.
1: I don't because- know since when I've become the adjudicator of what is garage and what isn't garage. <laughs>
0: So solid Daniel crew. Beddingfield.
1: Daniel Beddingfield. Defo, not garage. Craig David. I would say he straddles pop and garage. Well, I'm sure we'll learn lots more by next week.
0: I have an apology to make. Troll Tunga is in Norway. The mountain you were talking about. Yeah. Understandably, some upset Norwegians got in touch, as I said it was in Sweden. Apparently... I'm not getting into the Scandi Wars. Apparently, the Swedish claim everything. And so I unwittingly fed into this painful history. I did know this. It was careless of me. And for that, I'm very sorry to all the Norwegians who now wish to push me off the edge of the long finger of (laughs) troll Tunga. Thank you for clearing that up. Also interested, got a few messages, um, furious messages about covering Selling Sunset last week. Now, I am really riveted by this because there is such a divide over reality TV still, isn't there? And I don't mean people who watch it, people who don't watch it, but there's a real snobbery. About whether it should be discussed. Yeah, that we should not even, you know, you should not even engage with reality TV, that it's filth.
1: Yeah, I mean... I just think I'm always interested in the stuff that everyone is talking about, most of the time I don't want to watch it, because as we discussed in last week's episode, I'm petulant and immature, Um, and I like to be different and special. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Are you millennial? But I do think it would be remiss of us not to discuss something that is the most talked about programme at the moment. Like that has to be interesting. Like why is ever I'm still fascinated as to why everyone is obsessed with property porn at this moment in time. And actually, interestingly, you know the thing that you've you keep hearing about property at the moment is there's gonna be this huge slump post COVID and it's gonna it's gonna be the lowest, you know, it's the best time for first time buyers and there's it's gonna be the lowest um house prices in London for years. It's like the highest it's been yeah in years apparently
0: there's been this it's shot up totally because people are obsessed with just living in varans aren't they because they've become more important than they ever are but i think i'm always interested in the snobbery around reality tv because that was like our founding principle for the hilo really wasn't it is to talk about those things that are considered um trashy or not Mm. worthy of discussion in the same breath as you would talk about much more important social things social and political mm. things i'm curious as to why it engenders such fury i do understand that it's like it's a vulgar show obviously like that mm. you know it's it's all about money but reality tv reflects shifts in social culture even structured reality i i, I wonder if it's just
1: fatigue do you know what i mean like when you do, and i do understand that i get this with love island every year where it's just like oh i just can't really hear anyone talk about this thing anymore particularly if you're not watching it maybe it just becomes boring or maybe just everyone on the internet is fucking furious all the time that could (laughs) that could also be it it's true it's true (laughs) speaking of TV I found out something about making TV today that has boggled my mind apparently on EastEnders they are using Perspex screens for kissing scenes did you hear about this?
0: No, I don't think I realised they were filming again because they had a break and mm. they did the kind of EastEnders undercover... not East, EastEnders something that Stacey Dooley presented, which I really liked, watched a bit of that. Have they brought it back now? Are they filming again? Yeah, they must be. Yeah, they're filming again. And I just read that the actor,
1: Louisa Lytton Yeah, I know his, exactly who she is, yeah. She, well, she said that she and James By when they were doing kissing scenes, had to kiss through Perspex. And she also said just how strange it is, obviously, coming back to a filming set where everyone is always so up close and makeup's being applied to you. It's quite a kind of claustrophobic environment, those sets. And she said how strange it is doing everything socially distanced. But how would that work, kissing with Perspex? They must not have any close-ups. It must be from far away.
0: It's also... I don't know how that must be so difficult for them they must have to I mean luckily they they write their storylines quite on the hoof anyway and I'm just wondering EastEnders yeah sometimes I love it next time there's snogging can you do can you film it for me please yeah my mum watches it every night I wonder how she'll take to me asking her to film a snogging scene for you she already (laughs) she already thinks you're a filthy filly so (laughs) now the Banksy rumors from 2016 have resurfaced once again Dolly Which ones are these? Remind me. That Neil Buchanan from Art Attack is actually Banksy. (laughs) But so, where has this come from? It's all over the internet again that people think it's Neil Buchanan from Art Attack.
1: But is this just some joker? Like, is there any? Is this evidence-based?
0: Well, it would make sense, wouldn't it? You can tell. Why would it make sense? Because he's arty because he's out of work, I
1: suppose. He's not presenting Art Attack anymore, is he? No, no,
0: no, no, no. I think Art Attack ended when...
1: Well, that's what I mean, but what is he, what's he been doing with his time since? Let's
0: have a look. Maybe being Banksy. Hold on, Hold on let's have a look. Neil Buchanan. Okay, so <laughs> I've, just, I've actually just Googled this again. An uh, independent. Art Attack Neil Buchanan forced to deny being Banksy. Mirror. <laughs> Art Attack Neil Buchanan unveiled as Banksy in bizarre viral fan theory bristol live art attack presenter neil buchanan responds to rumors wow busy day for neil buchanan um uh, i don't know what he's doing right now all the pictures of him is just in this red art attack jersey or rugby Um, shirt i remember the jersey yeah um but you would wouldn't you if you were banksy you would deny it of course of course never gonna know
1: do you think we'll never know Banksy might fall on hard times in later life, though, and he might have to open up his the doors of his home to hello for a at home shoot. I don't know. I hope maybe I hope he, I hope he doesn't reveal himself. Actually, I think it's kind of cool if we never find
0: out who he is. Before I die, I want to know who Banksy is, and I want to know how Dynamo does all of his tricks, and Darren Brown, and David Blaine. My God, who's <laughs> trimmering in your back backyard? I don't know. Oh, well, speaking of backyard,
1: I have a story to tell you that I've been... I actually don't know what that noise is because my... I don't have a garden. It's my neighbours below. But they don't have any grass. So I don't know what that contraption is doing. Uh, I've just checked. It's a leaf blower. I've tried to get his attention. He is very much kitted out in the full Ghostbusters costume and the leaf blower is so impressively industrial that he he um he couldn't hear me when I asked how long he will be blowing the leaves anyway speaking of backyard have I told you about Francesco no it's just something that's been haunting me for many years and I finally resolved it this week so I moved into this flat well over three years ago and something that I noticed, it began about three times a week when I first moved in, that at around dusk, I would hear this haunting voice, almost like chanting the name Francesco. And I've taken the liberty of sending a few of my recordings from over the years to Charlie over the weekend to string together for you to listen to. very spooky it's literally it sounds like monks it's like this Francesco
0: I can't believe you got CJ to stitch them together for
1: me I know Pandora I've been obsessed for years I've been obsessed so I got kind of spooked by it the first like couple of weeks I was like what is that sound so anytime he started doing that noise whoever it was I would hang out of my window to to try and see where it was coming from and I couldn't see anyone and then it got to a point where any time I would hear, <laughs> or this sort of church bell, I would go up to my roof of my building and look around. And at one point I was like, who are you? Like, who is Francesco? And he didn't reply. And this goes on for years. And I'm complaining a lot about it. And my friend's like, well, how come every time we're at your flat, we never hear it? So then they were like, start recording it. Every time it happens, it starts happening more and more frequently, start recording it. And I identify that the, where the noise seems to be coming from is the canal. So my flat is backs onto the canal. Now I'm freaking out when I find that out because I'm like, this feels like a ghost. So I'm like Googling Francesco. Like if anyone died in the canal in Victorian times called Francesco, it just feels like this sort of underworld noise and it reverberates everywhere and then i say to my neighbor do you hear this francesco and he's like no never heard it and he's lived here for like 25 years so then my friends are like oh it's like it's a ghost that's just speaking to you then some fucking weird stuff happens like they made a joke that it sounds like a sort of gondola (laughs) i was just thinking that a gondola yeah Yeah, it's exactly what i was thinking a gondolier ghost and then I went on holiday to Greece last year. We arrive at the Airbnb and there's a gondola uniform in the hallway of the Airbnb. because. Mm. And I go white as a sheet and I'm like, Francesco is following me. Mm. Anyway, last week, I start hearing it louder than I've ever heard it before. I hang out of my window and I see a little black and white cat going along the fence and the voice going, oh, goodbye, Francesco you've come back home
0: (laughs) so the mystery is solved (laughs) so you didn't ask that neighbor then so well now my friends are like maybe it's a ghost cat
1: but i don't think so
0: (laughs) oh my god so it's a visiting francesco is a visiting cat
1: no, Francesco's obviously the cat that belongs to this neighbour, but he obviously, like a few times a week, goes wandering. And now what I hear is he often shakes the food. And also he just... <laughs> yes. he, so that's the, the sort of haunting noise in between the Francescos. and
0: I just can't I believe just it's f- taken
1: you years to spy I him. know. I feel so relieved because I
0: really, really was getting quite scared about Francesco. Oh my God, that's amazing. My mum believes in poltergeists, 100%. Mm. Yeah, that's why I thought you might like this story. It sort of has like a sprinkling of Catholicism over it. (laughs) Oh my God, sorry, I just hit my head on the table. Jesus. Um, (laughs) That is very, very good. Thank you. It doesn't quite have the peaks of a great story like Francesco the Ghost does, but I thought you might (laughs) quite enjoy um, this circular from my dad. I don't call it a group email. It feels like a circular uh, of the origins of some sayings. Okay. Ooh. <clears throat> each king in a deck of playing cards represents a great king from history spades is king david hearts is charlemagne clubs alexander the great diamonds julius caesar wow okay here's a good one came up. i wonder who came up with that i just like to know how thi- i'd love to know how things actually properly kind of take off yeah in shakespeare's time mattresses were secured on bed frames by ropes when you pulled on the ropes the mattress tightened making the bed firmer to sleep in hence the phrase good night sleep tight that's a good one. Oh, okay this is good this is where you get mind your p's and q's from in english pubs ale was ordered by in english pubs ale is ordered by pints and quarts so in old england when customers got unruly the bartender would yell at them mind your pints and quarts and settle down oh that's great because p's, mind your p's
1: and q's now is quite a prissy like i think of it as quite a prissy phrase about about
0: being polite and
1: actually it's got it quite... about
0: stopping bar brawls. And here's another bar one. Many years ago in England, pub frequenters had a whistle baked into the room or handle, oh my God, you can love this, Dolly, baked into the rim or handle of their ceramic cups. When they needed a refill, they used the whistle to get some service. <laughs> Wet your whistle is the phrase inspired by this practice. I don't think that quite means the same thing. For the purposes of legality, uh, these are not hard facts. These are myths. Um, I'm sure they'll all be wrong. If you know any more, because there are a gazillion, obviously, the English language is full of wonderful sayings, uh, get in touch. I have
1: news for you, Panda, of someone, a celebrity, who is really pushing the limits of the phrase making your own fun in lockdown. You actually mentioned his name earlier. Can you guess which celebrity it is? Neil Buchanan from (laughs) Artito. No, it's David Blaine. Have you heard what he's done? No. David Blaine has completed his latest daredevil stunt this week after a 10-year break from his last one called Ascension, which is apparently live on his YouTube channel. The video shows Blaine floating over the desert in Arizona, piloting 52 helium-filled balloons at an altitude of roughly 8,000 feet. So he just attached... 52 balloons to himself and floated up into the sky.
0: Every child dreams of doing that. I know. How did 52
1: balloons carry him? He said, this stunt has been 10 years in the making. Let's turn worry into wonder and take magic to new heights. Quite like that phrase. If anyone's ever worried about me, I will just say to them, well, let's turn worry into
0: wonder and I will drink these 15 shots. There's got to be something in those balloons because 50 balloons is not going to carry a man. Well, I don't know, maybe they're really big balloons. Have you seen a picture? Yeah, it is a lot of balloons. It is a really lovely picture of him. There's something quite kind of poetic about it. The balloons are massive. Yeah. They're like a multicoloured bunch of grapes. It's just, I don't want to show that to any children. Because what when they say can we blow up 50 of my birthday balloons and go off into the sky? You know, what the fuck do you come back with when they've seen a picture of David Blaine doing just that? I know. I'm not showing And, and, and they'll say to you, Mum, look, let's turn worry into wonder. And yeah, you'll... That, could, that phrase could really haunt you. Also,
1: and this is not me being disparaging about David Blaine, is that magic? Would we call him a magician? I don't know. Uh... Uh,
0: yes, because could
1: you do that? But he's not doing magic. That's not on account of magic, is it? It's on account of... Well, he's an illusionist, isn't he? I think he's I think he's a stuntman, basically, isn't he? I don't know. I don't know if I'd call that magic. Very inventive way of whiling away the hours while uh, nightclubs are still closed. Finally, I wanted to talk to you about the Dettol ad. Have you seen this, Panda? No, what's the Dettol ad? So a big ad that's been shown in tube stations, I've seen two different ones done by Dettol about going back to work. These two ads have gone viral. Someone tweeted a picture of both of them with a disparaging comment and they've gone viral. The ad is basically a kind of of romanticism and a, a kind of gushingly poetic praise of office life and commuting sort of tentatively attached to everyone slowly going back to the to the office and talking about you know making sure we stay clean and safe so here's what one of them reads hearing an alarm putting on a tie carrying a handbag receptionists caffeine filled air taking a lift seeing your second family, proper bants, plastic plants, office gossip, face-to-face meetings, accidentally replying all, leaving early for a cheeky afternoon in the sun. There was a Vice article, obviously, analysing it line by line. It was a very funny article. Uh, and I think they had articulated it very well. And they said, as much as I like my colleagues, I think if I started calling them my second family, they would stop inviting me to things. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second one said I mean it's in the same vein but it's it's talking about it's kind of romanticising the commute tapping in standing on the right walking the length of the platform hearing the announcements getting a seat half reading a newspaper the flicker of light through tunnel I mean it is annoying isn't it I find those ads quite
0: annoying the, the, the second one's just really really mundane tapping in walking down the length of the platform the first one i can see i can imagine why that annoyed lots of people because lots of people quite rightfully are finding any kind of romanticism of going back to work physically like quite insulting or irresponsible because lots of people still feel understandably very unsafe however there's just there's no one narrative about work or how people are feeling about work or about the pandemic, it's so, everything is divisive. So for every person that understandably doesn't want to go back to work, I think there are some people that really miss the camaraderie of the office. I was talking to friends this weekend who really, really want to get back to work, you know, who don't feel like their work or the work they're doing with their team members is meaningful when they're not together and that they like the place they work. They find it really hard to, work from home they don't feel productive in the in the same way so I think there are so many different narratives but I I do understand why that annoyed people because also work work is work as you say it's not a second family but I also feel like I don't know on the other hand you should be like oh that's really gross of a brand to kind of Capitalize on the pandemic, but you know it's been six months no, If now. anyone's
1: allowed to, I think it's Death definitely... <laughs> Hole. I think they're legit allowed to. This is their moment in the sun. Death Hole are never gonna have a moment like this again.
0: But I've got to be honest, I don't miss working in an office that much. That made me miss working in an office. Did it? Yeah, I want to break from work early and go drink in the sun. I want to chat around the water cooler. I think the problem is
1: is that it's insensitive to a lot of people definitely and fundamentally I think the issue is it's just seeing things through the lens of nostalgia in a way that distorts the truth like how many people are clocking off to go for a drink in the sun like most people don't get to just leave work early to go have a drink in the sun. And actually, I think people I've read in articles, people saying this is just an example yet again of a privileged lifestyle being used as the assumed default for everyone's experience, Um, which I, you know, I really do see the validity in that argument. I also just think I just think it's like twee and nostalgic in a way that that is annoying to people and doesn't ring true.
0: Okay, so I've just done a Google and you're right, there are an overwhelming amount of op-eds that see about how much that advert has pissed people off. Proper Bants. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. I didn't hear you say this bit, but this is great. CCing, BCCing. Someone tweeted. It's remarkable. CCing, BCing. It's like they think no one's doing that at home. <laughs> absolutely
1: no so, CCing or BCCing going on. I know, it's uh, just all round badly executed, I think. Although, on a positive note, I was on the Northern Line this week and I saw something lovely on the tube, which was on my tube carriage, a poem. You know, they sometimes do these poems on the underground. So what I saw was called Time to be Slow by John O'Donohue, which I'll read now. This is the time to be slow. Lie low to the wall until the bitter weather passes. Try as best you can not to let the wire brush of doubt scrape from your heart all sense of yourself and your hesitant light. If you remain generous, time will come good and you will find your feet again on fresh pastures of promise where the air will be kind and blushed with beginning. Isn't that beautiful? That
0: would be a cool job that I've never realised the existence of before. Poetry, Poetry curator for TfL. If you know the poetry curator for TfL, can you email the Hilo? I want to know who they are.
1: Yeah, and I'll tell you which job I think is probably not great at the moment. The poor copywriter who wrote, we're all missing proper bands
0: for Dettol. They might be the same person, Dolly. We're all multi-hyphenates now. May well be. (laughs) Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa, all of your favourite
1: treatments at home. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty treatments, including massage, manicures, pedicures, waxing, hairdressing and tans. When you use Secret Spa, there's no need to ferret around the city's salons for appointments. You can book from 6am to 10pm, seven days a week, and sit back and relax while your therapist comes to you. Perfect if you're working long hours or have children at home to look after.
0: Secret Spa works with only the best therapists and also has several rounds of assessments so you can be sure you're in safe hands. They also wear full PPE and carry out the appointment under strict hygiene protocol. And although it does make practical sense to
1: have beauty treatments at home when the public salons are under so much pressure, it's also just such a luxury to enjoy them at home. You can have your own music playing, you can drink your own tea, you can wear your least attractive leggings and t-shirt combo.
0: To enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, visit secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. That's secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. I watched a heartbreaking and incredibly moving drama on the BBC called Anthony, which is by Jimmy McGovern, that came out at the end of July. Um, and I watched it last week. It's a reimagining of the life of Anthony Walker, who died in 2005 at the age of 18 in a barbaric, racially motivated murder, which means he would now be 33. Jimmy McGovern is great friends with Anthony's mother, G. Walker. He's asked her opinion on his work for many years and together they worked on this drama to imagine what his life could have been like. Oh, that's such a wonderful idea.
1: I think that's such a respectful way of mm. looking at that story.
0: And I think it's such, a, it's such a beautiful thing to do with the grief of something so horrific. Horrific as well to to give Anthony's family what was taken away from them which is hope for his future and an optimism it starts at 25 when Anthony's married to his teenage sweetheart and it works backwards to the event of Anthony's death unsurprisingly and this is what there was great praise for at the time when it came out and I've been dying to watch it ever since I read about it um, the scenes of Anthony with his mother by his bed are so sensitively portrayed and completely heartbreaking and there is a part which so many people have flagged on social media as just the most beautiful bit in this drama where Anthony's mother covers herself with his feet literally she pushes his feet all over her face as he's lying unconscious in bed and she's desperately trying to hold on to the physicality of her son when she knows that she's losing him And it felt like such a visceral scene of what it is to be a parent, their flesh to be of your flesh. And when I miss my children, I miss their feel. And it was both illuminating and devastating to see that that yearn to touch your children never goes away in adulthood as well. And to see this woman knowing that she couldn't touch her son for much longer because of the actions of two racist murderers who are now both in jail and, and that scene of physicality is just absolutely breathtaking and and beautiful but where there's devastation uh, there's also a drama with a lot of optimism and rather than define antony by his Death, which is obviously what happens when someone is killed in a newsworthy tragedy. Jimmy allows us to view him as a life that could have blossomed. So Anthony, at 18, was a devout Christian who wanted to be a lawyer and work in civil rights. He was already contributing to the household. His mother said he had integrity and a strong work ethic. He was a young man who could have had a family. He could have helped other people. And that's not to say, as sometimes happens in death, that he's painted in the, in the drama as an angel. There are a few times when his strong sense of right or wrong hurts the people in his life. But this idea of a life he could have lived struck me in the same way that Shirin Kale's Lost to the Virus series does that we talked about last week, this fleshing out of regular human lives, this celebration of their everyday triumphs, their hopes, their ambitions, their weddings, their children, which would never make the news, only their deaths make the news, and sometimes, not even then, sometimes they're just a number, but that in, our own li- in their own lives, in our own lives, these things are newsworthy. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful piece of drama with some extremely harrowing, thought-provoking parts, and I think it's landed at a really prescient time. Where can I watch that Pandora? That is on BBC iPlayer. I also guzzled in two settings, as did my husband, Igioma Aluo's book, So You Want to Talk About Race, which is out now in paperback. I mentioned that my husband guzzled it too, as he's not a big fan of reading. He's what I think of as a holiday reader. So he'll read maybe one book a year on holiday, but he wouldn't choose to read the rest of the year. And so the fact that he guzzled this one, I think, is evidence of how compulsively and propulsively written it is. So You Want to Talk About Race makes so many things incredibly clear, how the tiny infections feed into a broader pattern. For example, Ijeoma uses an analogy of being punched on the arm to express microaggressions. So if you're walking down the street and you accidentally punch someone on the arm and they become furious at you and you're thinking, hey, what's the problem? It was an accident. She says, imagine that person's been deliberately punched on the arm Every single day, and then you come along and do it accidentally, but you're still punching a really sore spot a spot that that person, a bruise that that person has come to fear and protect every single day. And I found that one of so many ways of her really clearly explaining why, oh, I didn't mean to be racist, I have good intentions, doesn't mean that it's okay. You're still punching an arm and it's still landing in the same spot. That's such a clear metaphor,
1: and it's something that I'm really starting to understand more and more. Which is, if you're not recognising how something could be hurtful that you're saying, e- even if it is, as you said, well intentioned, not recognising that is in itself racist.
0: It's a problem. And what's brilliant about the book is it, exp- it explains so many things that I know a lot of us are still not quite getting or not quite understanding or it's explaining things that people are a little bit embarrassed to ask and that maybe they're going onto to Google not getting clear answers and they're not doing anything about that and this is where this book steps in. She also examines so rigorously her own life Um, And that makes this book, I think, so admirable. She writes, and I'm sure this was uncomfortable for them, about her own family situation, about her mother who is white and how that means she often doesn't get her daughter's lived experience and how Idioma finds it frustrating when she tries to get it. And she writes another time about how she, as a quote-unquote comfortable person of colour, accidentally or unwittingly created hierarchies in a community that needed solidarity. And she uses an example of a picnic, which she came to realise through Friends was made up of privileged black people who had achieved some of the same indicators of white success in Seattle. And that meant, she said, that it was a comfortable and safe place for her, but not accessible to everyone. And there's a passage when some people come up to join the picnic, and she realises this that I would like to read. They were black people, but they were definitely not with us. They had a different style, a different swagger than ours. They were close-cropped fades and basketball shorts. We were long locks and hipster jeans. They were people who came to the white-dominated part of town simply for the well-maintained basketball court. We came for the gastro pubs and art walks, and a lot of us lived there. These were people who would have been called real black by people I grew up with, who often used such terms to point out how not black my education speech and fashion sense obviously made me. Sure, the organiser said, and handed up a bottle of wine. The awkwardness was eased and the men sat down and joined us. Conversation resumed as it had before and after an hour or so, I gathered my kid and my picnic blanket and went home. In the following days, I couldn't stop thinking about those men who had approached us at the picnic. I couldn't stop thinking about the silence of our group as they walked up. Why had it been so awkward? Why would our own people, fellow people of colour, make us so uncomfortable? And then I realised why with a sinking feeling to my stomach. When we were building our community, those men weren't who we had in mind as members. When we talked about expanding art opportunities for people of colour in Seattle, they weren't who we had in mind. When we talked about diversity in tech, they weren't who we had in mind. When we talked about getting a hip group of black and brown people together for a picnic on a sunny day, they weren't who we had in mind. When we talked about community, they weren't who we had in mind. And this wasn't because we felt any animosity towards these men it was because when we talked about people of colour we talked about people like us we were talking about people of colour with college degrees and high fashion clothes and eclectic taste in music we talked about people in our social groups with our interests and our opportunities and struggles we talked about yes people of colour all facing oppression due to the colour of our skin and many due to our genders and sexuality but we were talking about people with our specific sets of privileged and I hadn't examined that
1: that's very probing, isn't it? And I really
0: admire her for for being that honest and, and self-aware. It's so probing. Ijoma in her preface, describes her book as something of use. And there's even a discussion guide at the back of the book, which she hopes will enable discussions around race in the workplace where people of colour are able to be less of a walking racial Google. She wants her book to help take the tension out of these discussions so that they can be something that people can talk about. You know, until we can talk about these things, she says, more more frequently and fluidly and freely, um, then they just become things you lock away and they remain very painful for the people that are affected most. I really hope that lots of you will go out and read it. And please let me know what you think of it if you do. Dole, tell me about some things you've been enjoying this week. I watched a
1: glorious feature-length documentary on Netflix called Circus of Books, which is about a bookshop called Circus of Books that existed in West Hollywood since the early 80s, 1982, I think, selling gay pornography, but it was much more than a bookshop. It was, I think it was, well, it was the only bookshop of its kind in that area. It was a place where the gay community in LA could gather. It was a cruising spot. It was, from the way that they describe it, it feels like a, a kind of safe place and a sanctuary for a lot of gay men. And it is now regarded as a place of cultural significance, of, you know, cultural history. So the shop was bought in 1982 sort of by accident. Not, I don't want to give too many spoilers. Accident is the wrong word. It's more that the people who bought it, it wasn't ever in their plan to go into this business. It was bought by a special effects engineer and inventor called Barry Mason and his wife, Karen, who are both very heterosexual, very traditional, seemingly conservative, practising Jewish couple with three children. So very unlikely pairing for owning this shop of this kind during that time. And the documentary is shot by one of their their grown-up children And it traces back to how they ended up in this line of work, how they had to keep their business a secret from almost everyone they knew for the majority of their lives. And they've been running the shop for a very, very long time. Um, The effect that it's had on their kids when their kids found out what they were selling in their shop. And the documentary goes into so much more. It goes into gay porn culture in the 80s. Um, how those films were made, how those magazines were distributed. There are lots of interviews with people who were at the centre of uh, that industry at the time, including a man who I'm just now obsessed with called Jeff Stryker, who I think is one of the most debonair men I've ever seen on screen. He's like old Hollywood glamour. I think he's now in his 50s and he was the number one gay porn star in the 80s. I think he's done um, straight porn and bi porn as well, but he was mainly known for his gay porn. And I've since gone on a bit of (laughs) a mission to find out everything about this man. And John Waters has described him the Cary Grant of pornography, which I think is very accurate.
0: I can imagine this bookshop straight away. I have such an image of what it looks like, just how evocative it must be. And you've just completely reminded me of what an essential place in a community, a bookshop has. Yeah. It's so much more just than a bookshop. And I'm sad because maybe I'd forgotten that, you know, like I buy a lot of my books online um, from lots of different places before people get cross. (laughs) I know what you're all thinking. Um, And I... I'm actually reading a book at the moment where, which is about a husband and wife who have a bookshop and they throw, you know, parties and author dinners and live events at their bookshop. And I don't know, I just forgotten this year that that's what bookshops could be. And this, oh, this sounds so evocative. It's
1: amazing. It's really, really funny. And as you said, you really do understand why, this place, like it sounds silly, like it sounds, it's like a porn distributor basically, but it really, what it is, what it feels like it is when people are talking about the history of the place and when it first began was was a, a place of, of freedom for a lot of the gay community and uh, anti-shame. And the documentary also goes into much darker territories such as um, how the shop's huge customer base and employees were devastated by the AIDS crisis and how Barry and Karen were right in the middle of this tragedy while also having this distance from it because not only were they not gay they they weren't embedded really in gay culture well they weren't embedded, embedded in gay culture at all unless it was to do with their business so it's quite a rare and privileged position I think to have been right in the middle of that disaster that tragedy and f- to have been a, a such a close bystander and it doesn't shy away from the sadness and the darkness and the tragedy of lgbtq rights uh, over the last 40 years and it also has a personal story about the family running through which i won't uh, reveal but has an extraordinary resolution that i found deeply moving. It's just a wonderful film available on Netflix. Watch
0: it immediately. That sounds absolutely brilliant and really thoughtful original commissioning. Definitely.
1: Do you know, it was actually released in 2019 and did the rounds at the film festival circuit. And then I think Netflix picked it up after that. But it's just these incredibly profound illuminating moments about what it was to be a gay man at the end of the 20th century and moving into the 21st century but also just these like incredible moments of comic absurdity like watching an elderly quite conservative jewish woman doing a mass stock buy of different types
0: of cock rings and flavored lube it's just <laughs> it's so, wonderful it's so wonderful to watch Okay, that sounds so uplifting. I'm going to watch that ASAP. I also finally read, and
1: I've been so excited to read it, Gwyneth Paltrow's essay for Vogue that she wrote about her separation, her conscious uncoupling from her
0: ex-husband Chris Martin. Have you read it? I'm so glad you brought this up. This hits such a nerve with people. Didn't it? And I must confess, I don't think I would have necessarily read this had I not had a lot of people waxing lyrical about it to me. And when I did read it, I felt really ashamed because she confronts that exact assumption that she is someone very famous that has become a sort of figure for ridicule. And it did make me feel bad. I have mocked her before, or not mocked, but sort of critiqued what she's done with Goop and some of those kooky ideas that I find personally a bit irresponsible. And I think I had, yeah, I had forgotten that she was a woman going through what must have been tremendously painful, a divorce in the public eye. She's not just some, like, silly celebrity. And as she writes, all she was trying to do is break up with her husband in a way that didn't break her own heart or her children's heart's any further. And she she writes really movingly about that.
1: I think it's incredibly admirable. I really do. And I just think... I actually really like Winif Paltrow. I think that she talks a lot of silly bollocks, but pff, as do we all.
0: Yeah, I no, I totally agree. After reading that, I totally I, I agree. I
1: understand and accept that some of the things... That she recommends or that she explores might seem irresponsible in terms of the money that it's encouraging people to waste, or the false hope that it that it suggests people should bank into these kind of non medically approved things. But I also think I am nervous about saying this, but I do think that she is a well intentioned person, and I do think that she wants to make ...people's lives easier. That's really... I think that's what she's trying to do. Not to sit as an armchair psychoanalyst of Gwyneth Paltrow... ...but I think she represents a type of person... ...who it is so easy to sneer at them... ...and, and think that they are cynically selling hot air to us. And I think that she's actually... I think she she wants to make people's lives better. And I think her coming out saying... ...I'm consciously uncoupling from my husband... That was her way of trying to offer up her vulnerability and the things that she was learning. And an alternative to the usual divorce stories that you hear, particularly in with celebs, that she was offering that as something useful to people, something inspirational or something that collectively we could, we could try together. I think I was someone who who mocked her, I think, about that phrase and how kind of self-congratulatory it was. And, and I, I, like you, Panda, when I read the essay, I, I really did feel bad. And it was a reminder of... It's such a cliche, isn't it? But it was a reminder of... Um, that behind these kind of beautiful Hollywood grins and these, like, millions and millions of followers and this press machine they have around them, it is just a... It is just a human muddling through life and getting things wrong or trying things out and how difficult it must be to not only deal with the mistakes in your personal life, but to have everything kind of mocked and, and analysed when you're just trying to be open-hearted.
0: I remain very uncomfortable around some of the assertions that they have made and been fined for um, in women's health like, you know, the jade eggs um, helping the the kind of vaginal health. They've made certain kind of assertions about their products helping with fertility or um, they've made unfounded claims that I think are really damaging to the field of women's health. I fundamentally disagree with what Goop have done there. But I still think she is a woman who is allowed and entitled to use the words that she wants to you know to use the words that she wants to use for trying to muddle her way through her divorce and as you say she's just a normal fallible human so I feel I feel humbled and a bit ashamed of as you say of of the mocking and uh, of maybe seeing her as um oh I don't know just buying into the celebrity bullshit you know of thinking I know anything about Gwyneth Paltrow at all I don't I don't know a fucking thing about her as this essay proves I can still think that and be skeptical of goop so I think I just like yeah it just reminds you that you can separate these things out the woman from yeah. the business
1: yeah totally
0: so the essay begins
1: with her speaking about the moment she knew that her marriage was over And this is actually something that I've heard before from couples getting divorced, that she said it happened in a a quite serene way and it happened when they were enjoying a really lovely uh, weekend away together and she just knew that something had come to its end. And it's really sad, actually, the way that she describes it. Very respectful and, and very sad. And she talks about thinking about how they can move forward Uh, not as a romantic couple anymore, um, but not as a separated family. So she writes, I started to wonder, as impossible as it sounded, whether there was a way we could continue to feel the structure of our family on some level. Could we create a paradigm whereby we still ate meals together, vacation even? Could we find levity and laugh? But more than that, could my ex continue to be a family member, someone who would continue to protect me, want the best for me? Could I be that for him? I'd never heard of the phrase conscious uncoupling frankly the term sounded a bit full of itself painfully progressive and hard to swallow it was an idea introduced to us by our therapist the man who helped us architect our new future I was intrigued less by the phrase but by the sentiment was there a world where we could break up and not lose everything could we be a family even though we were not a couple we decided to try and then as we've mentioned she then goes on to talk about how they sort of trialed this for a year and she lived in fear of uh, their breakup coming into public consciousness um, and how that would affect their children and sort of the world knowing about this before they'd really worked out what the rules of the next stage of their life would be. And I can't imagine living with that fear must make you incredibly paranoid and, and stressed out and, she said she then finally settled on this this language that she and her family were going to use about what their future would be of conscious uncoupling and they released it on a in a press release like a newsletter by goop and she said she was just torn apart by how negative and cynical the reactions were from people across the board and how a very, very difficult year of her life then became even more difficult. And then she talks about how it's taken them a while to work out their new dynamic and there've been difficult days and uncomfortable moments and sad moments and how they've kind of found their stride because they made this commitment to have having a different kind of um, separation. And I think what's really important is the thing she touches on about what, can we continue to want... To make each other happy, can we continue to protect each other? Because I think the way that heterosexual, traditional heterosexual dynamics have worked, maybe it's because narcissism and ego are so at the forefront of heterosexual romantic culture, I think, Um, is that when you separate from someone, it doesn't matter how much you loved them, it doesn't matter whether it's the right thing to do, you are immediately usurped by someone else or something else in terms of who they love the most, who they cherish the most, who they have a sense of loyalty to. And that is upsetting always, I think. But I think that then becomes even more upsetting and problematic when they are the the co-creator and raiser of your children. I think mm. you you mm. have to be able to... And she says this in the piece, like, move through that bitterness. You have to ride through it. You have to find a way of trying to ride through that bitterness if, you know, sometimes it's impossible with the situation of the breakup. But if you can, it's so important. Because I do think that you can still want someone to be happy and safe and feel loyalty to them and feel like you want to champion them and be on their side and not be romantically involved with them. If you can somehow remove your ego from that situation. I think that residual afterglow of of love. Which remains in nearly every relationship that ends I think. You can if you're a real fucking grown up. And you swallow your pride and you work really hard together. I think you can find a way where. And it's not been hugely traumatic the ending. I think you can find a way where you can like channel that and like move it forward it's like this tiny little flame that you have to like just keep protected and sheltered and and cultivate and then
0: and it can continue to exist i am so um in admiration of divorced Mm co-parents who are on good terms because the removal of that ego must be so difficult because if you Mm -hmm. break up with someone and there aren't children involved you can just go see you later never have any desire to be in a room with you ever again but with children it's a big old fear of mine (laughs) really is (laughs) hi ollie
1: if you're listening um she ends the piece with some beautiful words of advice You loved your ex once and you probably still do. So keep those great qualities of theirs close to your heart, which leads me to the final and potentially most radical point. It's okay to stay in love with the parts of your ex that you were always in love with. In fact, that's what makes conscious uncoupling work. Love all of those wonderful parts of them. They still exist. They can still make you feel the way you felt for that person. Rather than shutting them out, lean into the unfamiliarity of those feelings and explore them. We lose all the nuance of life when we make it all bad or all good. Even when they are young, children understand that love takes multiple forms. I know my ex-husband was meant to be the father of my children. And I know my current husband is meant to be the person I grow very old with. Conscious uncoupling lets us recognize those two different loves can coexist and nourish each other. Gwynny, I take my hat off to you. Because honestly, I think back on all my relationships and I have not been able to... Salvage any love from any of them and turn it into something platonic and affectionate and regular and connected. And it, it makes me really, 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 really sad. And I think it's a great human art form to be able to do that. So I think we should all be a little bit
0: less snide about the conscious uncoupling. And I also think that people have absorbed conscious uncoupling culturally a lot more than we think. I think now the way in which divorced families have their setup up is a mm. lot closer to what she's writing about and people are aiming to be a lot closer. So I think she, I think her therapist coined something that a lot of other people are thinking about even if the term, as she said, is a bit, on the nose. Sickening. Yeah, mm. she said she
1: said in it that people used to come up to her and say why did you say that and people now come up to her and say how did you do that.
0: Any more for any more? Yes I would like to end on a little lighter but no less thoughtful Bella Mackey's piece on the joy of small purchases which I think put beautifully how the attitude to shopping has changed for many people during the pandemic. People still want to shop but a lot of people aren't making large purchases, budgets have changed, Um, people aren't able to go into shops to browse so easily Um, people have nowhere to go so you're not dressing up so much and as Bella puts it there have been lots of revelations around fast fashion although I do think those have abounded possibly for a little while either way a lot has coalesced to make people think about how they should shop and what she has found is a way to take the shame and guilt out of shopping in order to turn it into something more purposeful but no less uplifting She writes, As this year has alternately trudged and sped forward, I have taken unabashed joy in small acts of consumerism. The way I shop has changed dramatically, but the cheer it brings has not lessened, and I don't feel guilty about it in the way I used to. She goes on to write all of the things that she's bought over the last few months, which are so cheering and in their randomness have made... Real changes, she says to her life. You have not known real excitement until you use an electric corkscrew for the first time, opening a cold bottle of white wine in three seconds flat, no crumbling cork or aching shoulder. Buzz, it goes, the screw gliding smoothly into the bottle. An invention that we humans do not need or deserve, but one that makes life a tiny bit easier when you want to cry at the endless gloomy headlines and rush to open the bottle with your teeth. Has my stress psoriasis calmed down since I bought two neon pink candles and watched the bright wax warp over many evenings sat at home? Well, no, but this groundhog life is at least illuminated by a bright pink light now. Does the eyebrow serum I apply last thing before bed make me sleep better? Perhaps not, but my brows are now suitably expressive while I'm dutifully wearing my mask, bushy enough that Groucho Marx would stop me in the street and ask for tips if he was still alive and happened to frequent my favourite coffee shop in Zone 2. A tiny egg whisk from the hardware store at the end of my road means I bake with ease now, frothing egg whites as I mindlessly watch selling sunset at the kitchen counter, making more comfort food to soothe my jittery hands. A handmade cotton eye mask from a one-woman sewing operation on Etsy hugs my eyelids tightly as I fall asleep. The best purchase I made recently was a puzzle board for my dog, which confounds him daily and makes me laugh like a drain.
1: <laughs> oh, I love Bella Mackey's writing.
0: I want a tiny egg whisk now.
1: I think I want all those things. I want eyebrow serum. I want a neon pink candle.
0: I wish I had a dog. Why don't you buy a doggy puzzle board anyway? All right, then, go on.
1: Thank you for listening to The Low. You can reach us by emailing Show at gmail.com. Please get in touch. We love to hear from you. You can tweet us at The Hilo Show and you can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com with 100% of proceeds going to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity and 50% to Black Minds Matter. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Halo with the wind's in sound, 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 halo with the rain's in sound, holla with the rain's in sound, halo with the wind's in sound, halo with the wind's in sound, halo with the wind's in sound, halo with the rain's sound, halo with the
0: wind's in sound, tana nin tana nin tana nin tana nin king boy, tana nin tana nin tana nin tana nin king boy, tana nin tana nin